what it is about the things that matter to them. Today we have with us uh, someone who, uh, now Scott, I have to explain a little bit about who you are because maybe some of the other people will be as confused as I am. You posted for a long time under the name Hero Antagonist, but you are now S. Lance or Slance or Scott Lance. Uh, Why did you change your name away from the beloved lead character i think in snow crash oh it's well that's a it's a mix on it right because that was hero protagonist oh you know what i'm so dense about sci-fi that i'm not even sure i realized that good point yes well and i I, you know the the main rub there is that i tend to be argumentative and so the antagonist seemed to fit pretty well (laughs) uh now why would you why would you gravitate away from your goofy uh nom de plume on the internet it you know it just so happened uh, a few jobs in a row I ended up with just the uh, slants at email address it just kind of naturally came and I didn't think anything of it for a long time and I, I, actually I think it was right after I started PopCap everybody just kind of started referring to me as slants because of the alias and it just worked well enough that it stuck and I mean now as many people refer to me as you know more people probably call me slants than Scott at work and it's just <laughs> kind of sticking so uh, and that's the identity I've been going by and I figured you know uh, I, I actually kind of like having the the, the Slight subtle real name tie on the forum, and it just seems a little more grown up. You know, it 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 does in a way, but it also you could easily get away with it coming across as some like really hip, trendy, like teen cool slang thing. Like slants might be, maybe it's some dance that the fourteen year olds these days are doing. For all I know, like it, it could easily come across as something like that. <laughs> I'm jealous cool. that you have a hip like last name first initial. I I couldn't do that, for instance. Uh, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way. Yeah. I actually tried a uh, quick quick uh, tangent. I tried in graduate school briefly, and not really, but H. Ross Perot was running for, for president, and I thought, you know, what if I had my first initial middle name, last name, and I would be T. Wesley Chick. Uh, and I remember there was a board in the dorm where you have to, like, sign up to – I guess it was to do kitchen duty or whatever. Uh, so, so I had my name up there as you know, T. Wesley Check. And I remember sitting in the dining room once and somebody looking to see whose turn it was to clean the kitchen and squinting up at where I'd written and, and going, who's Tweezley? <laughs> <laughs> so the whole T. Wesley thing didn't. didn't yeah. uh, so you are hero antagonist. And it's funny that you say you're argumentative, because one of the things I wanted to do when I realized, oh, I'm going to be talking today to hero antagonist, is apologize to you, because I know you and I have a, a long history on the forum, and I, I think for the most part I've, I've dug talking to you, but I know in the past you and I have gotten sort of down and dirty with each other. I, I know I've said some rude things to you, and I, I think it's all in the spirit of just, just Internet debate, um, but I hope you never took any of that personally, and I, I always did enjoy... I think we've had some interface throwdowns, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, and, and Tom, I hope you understand I've always forgiven you and understood <laughs> how wrong you are when it comes to battles for, of Prince of Persia for DS. Oh, that's, that's, that's right, because I was trying to think. what It was an interface argument, and I think, gosh, it's been so long, but I think my assertion was it's not that bad. 
damn it. And, and yours was that you had some criticisms about it. But, yeah, I, I recall we got into some knockdown drag out, uh, little Internet punch outs on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think he wants to accuse me of uh, picking up my ball and going home. So. Oh, that's one of those great, like, passive. It. That's one of those things you definitely say that to someone on the Internet. And if they don't respond to it and if they don't get sucked back into the fight, it means they have picked up their ball. <laughs> it's one of those uh, have you stopped beating your wife kind of things. It's, yeah. it's a no-win situation you can throw down on someone's cheap tactic. I apologize. So. <laughs> oh, no. I, you know, I, I have a habit of luring people into that, I think. Now, let me ask you. You obviously have a very long history with strategy games. You know, the fact that you and I are probably two of the maybe ten people in the world who played that, that Prince of Persia DS version. Uh, how did you get into strategy gaming? Man, that is a good question. Uh, you know, way back in the day, uh, you know, the roots of gaming, I, I think I played all those, you know, D&D gold box games, and I mean, even the older stuff, the RPG type stuff. And I, I always, I know this isn't a very common sentiment, certainly where, it, where it's evolved to, it isn't the case anymore, but I always saw RPG as sort of a subset of turn-based strategy. Absolutely, absolutely, because those were SSI games back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, yeah, it's funny, because SSI dominated both turn-based strategy and RPGs for a while, at least in terms of uh, market sales, I think. Mm-hmm. And, so, and there was a lot of common ground, and, and you know, so that kind of got me in the my foot in the door. And then you know, there was a few a few nice titles that would come through uh, from SSI, the, you know, the General series, the Fantasy General, Panzer General, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I seem to recall. I mean, Archon was kind of a, a hybrid, of course, and, and actually the strategic level was kind of. Uh, Kind of boring, but I think I did more time fantasizing about what the game could have been more than what it actually was. Did you ever play Unholy War, the uh, the PS2 game that the Toys for Bob later did? No, and I heard you. It was the last podcast you mentioned that I thought. And I, yeah, because I've never I, seen it. Unholy War, I think, is the fruition of what Archon could have been. Like you talk mm-hmm. about what Archon could have been. If you ever get a chance, and I can't imagine you would because it's it's really obscure. I doubt it'll run on a PS3 even with emulation. But Toys for Bob in Unholy War did Archon right. Finally, I mean, it's just such a fantastic game, uh, and and I think you would definitely appreciate that. So. When at what point did you decide? Well, dang it, I'm going to make my own game because that happened. Yes. Yeah, it did, and it was kind of funny. I was um, I just quit a job, and it was a little sort of granola munching basement dot commy kind of startup. Uh, we were actually doing uh, web development work for nonprofit organizations, but I mean, it was a bunch of good guys and and. We just none of us really knew how to run a sustainable business, and I mean, it, what's really really sad is that I probably came the closest, and I had no idea what I was doing. So, you know, we were constantly hemorrhaging money and all that, and, and I ended up leaving there. The guy who had founded that company was independently wealthy for you know just weird bizarre reasons, and um, I just I I really you know I always think around with designs, and I had one that I thought was looking good, and I'd been kind of watching the indie community pretty closely, and thought, you know, they can do it, I can do it, right? And, I mean, the answer turned out to be very, very wrong, by the way. I just uh, fast-forward a few years, but the... Um, wrong about if they could do it, I could do it? Wrong yeah, about I mean, how I, easy that would be? Yeah, you know, I, I was I was proud of the game, but mm-hmm. it, it it didn't do too well financially, and I am literally still paying off the debts. The, the, uh, the money I made from doing Land of Legends... What the revenue checks weren't even enough to pay for the interest on the loan I took out to work on it. <laughs> True story. Ouch. 
Yeah, ouch indeed. So the reason That's, I still live in an apartment is because... Oh, gosh, wow. Well, tell, tell me about the game, because I... It was public. Was it Shrapnel, Matrix? Yeah, yeah it was Shrapnel. Shrapnel. Uh, and I'm not sure I ever played it, but wasn't it a, a sort of a turn-based tactical uh, Advance Wars scale fantasy game? Yeah, that, that's pretty close. And, and Advance Wars was my sort of seed of the game idea, but I, I really wanted to sort of evolve it, take it a different direction. But, you know, and, and actually it owes its roots back to Empire as well. The, same, the sort of idea is you've got a map, you've got cities that can produce units, you want to take those over, you can only have one unit per square. I mean, there's a whole sort of bullet list of qualities that this family of games shares, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, my project game for a long time in sort of deference to Advance Wars was Fantasy Wars, because it was sort of a fantasy version of Advance Wars. And I remember thinking, oh, God, that's the most ridiculous name. Nobody would ever release a game called Fantasy Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and so, did you not know that there was a Fantasy Wars? <laughs> no, at the time there wasn't. This was two, three oh. years before that, yeah. <laughs> fantasy Wars is relatively new. And oh, you know what? what? I'm, I'm thinking of what was the fantasy version of Panzer General. Oh, Fantasy General. Fantasy General, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, what was your, did you have a unique angle for uh, Land of Legends? Yeah, I did. And it was uh, it, mostly that the game had eight different races. So, you know, the thing with Advance Wars, which I loved, I played them all just religiously uh, over and over and over again. I mean, hundreds of hours probably in that series. The, the thing with that game is that, you know, sure, you can pick the different CEOs. Have you played much Advance Wars? Oh, yeah, yeah, good lord, yeah. Oh, okay, good, yeah. So you can, p- you can pick the different COs, and, and sure, sure, that gives a little bit of diversity, but, I mean, ultimately, you're playing with the same units, and the units themselves aren't even all that different. The, the two infantry units had some personality, and then there were three tanks that were all the same thing. They were just kind of more powerful, and, you know, uh, maybe the big one slows down a little bit, but, you know, th- there just really wasn't that much unit diversity, and, and you couldn't you couldn't sort of get away from that that core stable of units. And what I wanted to do was... Make the combinatorics of the game such that, that every game you play was different, right? I mean, with eight different races, and you pick one, I pick one, especially if there's a third neutral one you can take over, every game the idea would feel a little fresher. And I, I wanted to give the units some pretty intense personality. So, you know, the the, the easiest race in the, the game was the elves. So there's a runner, runs really fast, kind of got a little uh, short bow, but can't actually hit anything standing next to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's a, you go up a notch, and there's a sentinel, which is sort of a, pure, a melee unit, and it's pretty tough, but it doesn't really do a whole lot of damage, but it can take a beating, and it's pretty good on cities. Uh, you go step up from that, there's an archer, which runs around, has good range, but does uh, less damage if it moves before it attacks, and then finally there's a druid on top. And uh, There's only four units per race, which I, I think most people at first glance say, I mean, are you serious? That's not enough for a good gameplay experience, but you get four for you, four for your opponent's race, four, another four for the neutral race, and if you take over a, a city of another race, you can produce those units. So naturally, all the, when we start a game, all the units on my side of the map would be my race, all the cities on your side of the map would be your race. They all start is neutral and it's sort of a land grab to go get them and getting those uh, cross race synergies and, and you know getting the um, uh, different cities under your control could could really help and you know by the time you get eight or twelve different units and you know they got special abilities you got to kind of stop and read them a little bit um, more than that frankly I think would have been too much in a now, game. I'm hearing you describe that Scott I'm, I'm pretty sold what uh I, this, I don't mean this to sound as bad as it might sound, but what, what happened? Why, why didn't this take off, do you feel? Well, you know, uh, I think I probably had the wrong choice in publisher. Um, okay. You know, uh, sorry, Trapnel, if you're listening, but <laughs> I think I had the wrong choice in publisher. Um, I 
didn't really know what I was doing on a business front. Not that I claim to still know, but or know now, but um, it it really didn't sell many copies. It, it's funny though because you know Bruce Garrick reviewed it and and he treated it all right. Um, didn't get the best reviews and it you know it was it was panned for its price point. They you know I'd always envisioned it be a twenty dollar downloadable title and when it came out it was a thirty five dollar order online shipped to you via snail mail product and I I. You know, I wasn't happy with that, frankly, and I, I think that's part of why it didn't do very well. But yeah, that that was that whole shrapnel model too, wasn't it? Like that—that's kind of—I don't know if they've come around, but I, I do recall, isn't that kind of how shrapnel operates generally? Yeah, and I think they started offering direct digital downloads. And near the tail end of the sales cycle, they they started offering it direct digital. But it just—it was way too late. You know, the, Bruce's review. There was another review. They they you know sort of the summary of the whole thing is, hey, this isn't a bad little game, but it's way too expensive. And that's a case I've been making for quite some time. Now it does have, uh, I understand, a, a sort of a second lease on life. Uh, Land of Legends is is still like there. There's news, right? What can you tell us about what you're doing with it now? Yeah, there is. Uh, I'm working with a guy named uh, Ron Thies of uh, Ridiculous Software, and he's porting it to iPhone. And I, man, I can't even tell you how excited I am about that. There's a, I, I still, no joke, I still get emails from, you know, one of the five people who bought the game saying, you know, I, it, it doesn't actually work anymore. You know, the new operating systems, for whatever reason, Windows 7, Vista, it doesn't actually work on anymore. And so people ask me how to run it. The only reason I get to still play is because I can actually bring it up in Visual Studio, recompile it, and it seems to work there. <laughs> but it, it, this iPhone version, I can't play with any of my friends. I can't play it online. And, you know, I, uh, this iPhone version uh, should turn out to be pretty sweet. I'm really stoked about it. What can you tell us about the iPhone version, if anything, other than it's in development? Do you know anything about uh, when we might be able to play it? Uh, can I ask you about some of the features, or is it still too early to talk about those? I think we're aiming for, I don't know, probably Christmas, early New Year kind of release. I really don't know. It, it, Ron's driving development of it, and hmm. you know, the poor guy has to listen to me give him a lot more feedback than I think he wants to hear. <laughs> Do you know offhand, will you, like when I, when I hear you talk about uh, it, like Advanced Wars on the iPhone, obviously what people think of is Uniwar, and that yeah. game's awesome sort of infrastructure for multiplayer. Do you know if you'll be able to do anything like that with Land of Legends? That is absolutely the intention. As a matter of fact, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time making a campaign for it. The, the campaign turned out okay for PC, but I, I saw I, I got a lot of feedback and I saw a lot of problems. You know, as, as time marched on in hindsight, and so I'm, I'm actually taking the opportunity to, to revamp some of that, but. Multiplayer is always where this game has shined, and and same thing for you know Advance Wars. If you're lucky enough to actually be able to play somebody multiplayer in that game, it, it tends to be a lot of fun. Uniwar, I think, is the same thing. The, the multiplayer brings a lot more than the game itself has to offer, and and I think this is this is the same sort of thing. And I I really think that this has a lot more replayability than a lot of the competition. I mean, Uniwar's got the same sort of thing as Advance Wars, where there's really not a large stable of units. I mean, there's what two sides to that game, if I recall. Is that right? Three. They actually have a third in Uniwar. Yes, they have. Oh. The, the robots, the bugs, and the straight-up humans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't play all the way through that. Uh, played through, I thought most of the the campaign, but I haven't actually fired up any online games. Well, Scott, then you have not played Unimore. That's <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the Unimore though does like it, it's got the three sides are pretty asymmetrical, but there's no like it sounds like the the way there's a neutral race in Land of Legends. There's nothing like that. Once you lock yourself into a race in Unimore, that those are all the toys you get to play with. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like you kind of break that paradigm open a little bit. Uh, 
Yeah, and that asymmetrical thing is something that, that I love, and I, and I worked hard for in Land of Legends. I mean, there's eight different races, and I, yeah, they're only four units each, but, uh, you know, I tried to, to give each unit what I call extreme personality. You know, they, they've got a few abilities that really sort of shape how they behave, and, you know, some of the later races, you get into, like, the undead, which the units that they kill actually convert over and can become skeletons or whatnot, uh, other zombies on the same side. There's a race called Arcata, which are these sort of... Um, cat mage people and and you know they're, they're actually pretty strong the, the problem is when they get nicked a little bit their, their power drops uh pretty heavily so you know against most races and in most these strategy games you want to focus fire on units to burn them down so you're fighting against fewer enemies against those guys it's sort of an interesting strategy you want to nick everybody so that you break their concentration and they, they can't do quite as much damage or heal as much and then there's uh another race called the afflicted which is sort of these you know the sick people. There's like a plague bear and a uh, leper and a hag and they've, they've all kind of got their abilities and each one plays pretty radically different. I mean, it was, it's just a strategy player geek guy. It was fun for me. I spent a lot of time writing the strategy guide and the, <laughs> and the instruction manual just really trying to help people understand how different the play styles need to be for each of these races. And that doesn't even touch the combinatorics with other races. This sounds really cool, Scott. I'm really psyched. When you mentioned that there was a port of this I kind of thought, oh, that, that'll be nice. But I, hearing you describe it, this is a game I want to play. This is this sounds great. Uh, now I do it five years ago, Tom. I know exactly. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'll tell you where I was. I was uh, I was listening to Bruce kind of shrug about it and thinking, oh, well, I guess I don't have to look at it. <laughs> uh, now I want to I want to ask you something. You've used this word twice. Combinatorics is a real word. Yeah, I think so. I wow, so. and you game developers. I, that's like a whole other language. Nice. Okay, that's uh. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, uh, I think I threw out a couple other wanker terms, too. I think I used uh, synergy at least once as phone call, too. So Those wanker terms I'm used to. It's just every now and then when I hear a new one, uh, it, it sort of sticks out for me. I haven't been, uh, I haven't fully assimilated combinatorics, but I'm going to try to use that sometime in the next week. So that's my project. Uh, have you seen on the iPhone, you mentioned you're a board gamer, and I think this is a port of a board game. Have you, have you seen a, a little hex-based tile placement competition game called Nurashima Hex on the iPhone? I have. I think I won my first game yesterday uh, while going to the bathroom. So, yeah. yeah. I, I love that. Like, listening to you talk, I, I sort of also think this is, I guess it's much more abstract, but I, I love what they do with, with asymmetry in Nurashima Hex with the different races and, and how sort of few units each race gets and how it has a little bit of that extreme personality you're talking about. Uh, those guys did a great job. However... Nurashima Hex, no multiplayer. That's so annoying. Oh, that's crazy. That's totally crazy because that's exactly the kind of, and maybe it's because it's a board game port, but that's exactly the sort of thing I would love to play uh, with a Uniwar style uh, system. So, Well, yeah, the fact that it's a board game port is exactly why it should be multiplayer. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm thinking maybe they, I don't know the dynamics of this, but maybe they want to drive people to the board to buy the board oh, game. Or, yeah. I don't know. Uh all right, so uh, you uh, coming to the iPhone uh, by Christmas. If we don't see it by December 1st, I'm going to be sending you nag emails. How's that? 
<laughs> All right. Well, it's probably going to be, if I had to guess, probably early next year, but I'm, I'm hoping to have it before Christmas. That'd be a wonderful Christmas present for me, I'll tell you. Right, right. Good. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. How do you feel, by the way, about the fact that some jokers came along and uh, named their game League of Legends? At first, I was pretty annoyed, and now I am hopelessly addicted. I just finished a game with my wife, and I've got the game over screen still up on my computer. I'm staring at it right now. You're playing that? Isn't that isn't that a... I, so I love real-time strategy games, but I've been so uh, dissuaded away from both League of Legends and that Heroes of New Earth thing. They're yeah. both the Dota uh, alikes. Um, so you're playing League of Legends. Why that one and not Heroes of New Earth? Mostly by reputation. I think Heroes of New Earth is supposed to be uh, a little more hardcore, a little more competitive. You know, the, the communities for all these games, starting with Dota and, and these guys sort of inherited it, was uh, is a pretty harsh community. It's, it's hard to break into and be competitive. Everybody tends to be, frankly, pretty hateful. I mean, at least that's a reputation. And what I found is that Land, or, sorry, League of Legends is... <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate Lovely. It. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a lot softer of a community than I expected. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of, you know, 15-year-old asshats floating around, but uh, they're easy enough to ignore. And I, I feel like they've been trying to cultivate a, a good community. And, and, man, I'll tell you, the, the character design of this game, both aesthetically and mechanically, just floats my boat. Uh, it, there's 60 characters, and each one has a pretty distinctive feel. And, uh, I don't believe you. Right off you say that, I think 60 is too many. I, I'm totally in the camp, Scott, of four units per side is a great design <laughs> choice because you get that extreme personality. When you yeah. say there's 60 dudes, I don't want to play. You know, it's not bad because you, you control one at a time, right? And it's really right. all about knowing how to use your guy. And, I mean, over time you learn to, to watch out, okay, this guy's going to do this to me. I, I get it. But it's, uh, it, it's really – I don't think it's that intimidating. I mean, I remember the first – I know a couple dozen games I played, you know, that I, I was on vent uh, with a friend, and he was kind of trying to explain, okay, this guy's going to do this, and this guy's going to do this, and I'm like, man, this is all going over my head. I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm going to do yet. You know? <laughs> uh, who Of the games you've played, like, have you, of these 60 characters, is there one that you only play, or in, in Land of Legends, do you pick and choose among different characters? Uh, you mean League of Legends? Oh, good Lord, I just did it. I'm sorry. League of Legends. Jeez, <laughs> <Jesus>, Pete. <laughs> Yeah, in, uh, in League of Legends, you it's, so it's a free-to-play game, right? And that's uh, it's kind of interesting because that's the space I'm in, and we can talk about that later. But the the free-to-play space here, you, you come in and you download the client for free. There's a few uh, of these heroes every week. Now the problem is, it's a week's not really long enough to get really great with a character. Well, it was long enough to sort of get to know a character, and then of course they're pulled out from under you, and you got to choose from the new rotation of free guys. Oh. But it's also nice that if you want to. When you decide to drop in some money, or as you play, you get free currency just by playing, and you can use that to then buy a character you want. So the, the free rotating character roster is really sort of a, I think it was a rotating sample, and it does touch right. everybody. I mean, you, you know, you wait, I don't know, five, ten weeks, and they will have cycled through everybody. That's sneaky. Boy, that's a sneaky way to do free-to-play. Uh, who of uh, the folks you've played, describe for me your favorite character and how he works in League of Legends. So the one I play a lot is this, uh, this Viking guy named Olaf. And, and it, so this is sort of what I'm talking about being aesthetically interesting as well as mechanically interesting. So, you know, he's, he's a Viking guy. You kind of expect him to be pretty tough. And, and sure enough, he's got these uh, dual axes that he carries around. So one of his big abilities is he throws an axe. It's, you, can, um, you can pick a, a location either close to you or, or kind of far away. It will slice through everybody on its way to the destination. So it's really great if you can kind of line up your enemies and, and get that skill shot going. Slows them down when they hit them so you can catch up to them and kind of hack on them a bit. 
And I think it's really neat is there's a long cooldown on it, right? So if you throw it, you don't get to throw it again for, I don't know, 10, 12 seconds, which is kind of forever in a fast-paced game like this. And it plays a lot like Diablo, frankly, uh, in terms of how you control your character. And then uh, you go pick up your axe. If you're able to pick up your axe, you can throw it again pretty much immediately when you pick it up. So there's this dynamic of if somebody's chasing you, you can throw it behind you. It may slow them down for a minute, but you're not going to have the axe to throw again for a while. Whereas if you're chasing them, it's great because you throw it just far enough to hit them. They're running away from you. By definition, you're chasing them, so you're going to pick the axe right back up, and you can keep throwing it into them. That keeps slowing them down, and, and then you can finally catch up to them and slice them and dice them. He's kind of a big, tough, burly guy. He gets some bonuses at lower hit points, so it's this interesting thing. Well, higher hit points are safer, but I kick a little more ass at lower hit points, so how am I going to do this? Very nice. Now, how long does a a match of... Because I think my frame of reference is pretty much Demigod, and some of those games can can go on for a while. Are games of League of Legends short, or can they be these long slogs like in Demigod? They're typically, on the short end, probably 20 minutes on the high end, an hour. Okay. Yeah, I'd say I'd say 30 to 40 is pretty typical. Now, I think there's something wrong with my headphones here because it sounded like you said you were playing League of Legends with your, your wife. And That's right. I can't. Oh, please. So you're so one of my contentions, and I would love to be proved wrong, is that women don't play real-time strategy games. Uh, you can now tell me definitively that I am wrong. You are wrong. Awesome. <laughs> so tell me, how do you when when it's you and Mrs. Lance? Do you guys are you on the same team against other people? Do you do head-to-head games? Uh, how do you two play League of Legends? Well, you know, I didn't think she was going to get into it because she's not very competitive, and uh, she, you know, she'll play a lot of World of Warcraft, but she never really liked the arena or the battlegrounds so much. And you know, I remember when I started playing this, she was kind of watching me. She's like, oh, I like watching. I said, Well, you know, I just I don't I don't think this one's going to be for you to try. And I don't know if she was trying to prove me wrong or what, but she got into it, and she, no joke, she plays it more now than I do. And uh, I, she, we play on the same team for sure. It really helps that we're in the same room. You know, I've got a vent server for when our friends want to play with us too, and, and we can all jump on there. But. Now, when it's just the two of you against two random strangers, uh, is there any sort of matchmaking, or do you tend to get matched against people who are really good? Because that's one of the things, too, that's a little daunting about jumping into it, is I, I suspect at this point the player community is all so good at the game that I'm going to have to lose 50 games in the course of trying to figure out how it plays. Uh, how does that work out for you and your wife matched against two other people? Oh, pretty well. Well, first of all, the games are all either 3v3 or 5v5 right now. Those are the two maps I've got. So we're always playing with somebody else, whether it's somebody we know, if we're able to get them, or, or uh, you know, some random people. It's not so bad. Uh, the matchmaking is, is remarkably good in this thing, and I think it's because the game's successful enough that they've got a big community. You know, like, when you're playing StarCraft or WarCraft 3 back in the day, the only real problem you had to worry about at lower levels were Smurf accounts. Somebody who had, you know, was a higher level character or player, you know, they played the game a lot, but they created a new character to go beat up on some level one newbies. Mm-hmm. And there, that problem exists here, too, in part because if you've got a friend that just started, but you're super experienced, you don't really want to pull him up to be thrown to the wolves, so you create a new account to babysit ah. him, and then you end up sort of, you know, feeding on the competition a bit, because, you know, the, on the other side of the table are, in theory, some level one guys that are just getting started as well. Right, right. What is, who is your wife's favorite character? It's a good question. Twisted Fate. It's uh, some magician guy who throws a lot of cards. Kind of, kind of reminiscent of Gambit, of X-Men. That sort <laughs> is of it Gambit, isn't Gambit one of the lame X-Men? I don't know my comic book stuff, but that's something I've heard before. If by lame you mean awesome, then yeah, yeah, you're right on. <laughs> now he's uh, so so this twisted fate dude you said throws playing cards. 
Yeah, and and his uh his you know every church has got an ultimate. They hit a certain level and they kind of get one badass move that they get to whip out once in a while. And his is pretty cool. It's uh he can see all the actually his entire team gets to see all the heroes everywhere on the map. Ah. And he can choose to teleport anywhere at any time. Well, you know, like when he uses that ability, he can teleport anywhere pretty much instantly. So, what's nice is uh, if one of your teammates got into a, a scuffle and you know it's kind of even, you know that that character can jump in and tilt the difference. Or if uh, when your teammates is chasing somebody who's almost dead, but they're a little slippery and they're going right. to get away, you know, she can pop in a little ahead of them and just finish them off as he's running. It's pretty useful. Now, what, what, is, uh, what is the missus's first name, if I may ask? Oh, that's Megan. Megan. How did you meet Megan Lance? Or did she take your name, by the way? Just if oh, I don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. How did you meet Megan? That was, uh, you know, Match.com sort of thing, and, I, you know, I remember when we first started dating, I was like, well, this is just an internet dating thing. It's not really going to turn into much, and it did. When you first started dating, was she into video games, or is that something you uh, brought her around to? Yeah, she did play a little bit, and it, it surprised me some of the stuff she'd been into. I think she liked Diablo and some of those, um, you know, like Baldur's Gate, Dark Alliance, those, those console Diablo-like games, and... Uh, she ended up becoming a big fan of World of Warcraft, as did I. Uh, not too long after we started dating, that came out, and I remember she was driving around one day because she had, she had played a little bit at my house, and it was again one of those. Yeah, I don't know if this is really going to be for you. I think it might be a little too hardcore for you, and I don't know <laughs> if she took that as a challenge or what. But uh, before I knew it, on, on her own accord, she was driving around trying to find a copy for herself because she she was smitten. Megan sounds pretty awesome. It sounds like you every now and then accidentally throw down gauntlets, and she just picks it right up and smacks you with it. That's right, yeah. I've got to figure out how to use that to my advantage. <laughs> what, what does Megan do uh, during the day? She's a, a veterinary technician, and she loves her animals. Oh, you married a vet. That's awesome. So she's not technically a vet. She works with vets. Is that kind of what that means? Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. I mean, I, I, she hated the analogy once. I, I think I made sort of the... the um, nurse to doctor analogy, and, and she got real upset. But I mean, it's it's she's not a she's not a veterinarian as most people think of them. And in a lot of ways, she does uh, more technical work than the veterinarian actually does. Um, uh, most people don't realize, but a lot of, I get well, for what she tells me, a lot of the uh, work of an actual veterinarian is sort of the human interaction part of it. And I also have seen there's a lot of business management. A lot of them tend to run their own businesses, and that's a big part of it too. Whereas, you know, she's the one actually engaging in the, sure. the medicine and science and all that. Now, uh, are, you have two cats and a dog. Did either of them come from her? You know, actually, uh, I don't think any of them came from work, but uh, Megan always has her eyes open for animals that are kind of in dire straits and that she wants to save, and uh, that's where our two kitties came from, is they were both cats in dire straits. But, Rescue uh, cats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I trust me, I think we'd have a lot more cats if I weren't... <laughs> <laughs> a little firm about wanting, you know, because I, I like giving due attention to all the members of her family, and, and I do consider the members of her family. And what do the what do the two cats think of the dog, and vice versa? You know, it's a funny question. The uh, peeps, uh, we've got an old sort of an old fussy old lady cat, and she just can't stand the dog because the dog's just this this tiny bundle of energy. It's a little Italian greyhound, if that means anything to you. Um, just this little ten pound bundle of energy, and. Mm -hmm. Peeps won't have it, so anytime the dog comes around, she just kind of hisses and, and makes it clear to stay away. <laughs> and meanwhile, we've got this other enormous cat. This thing is 20 pounds, and he's just a giant fuzzball. And, and I mean, he's a little obnoxious because he's kind of in his teenager stage right now, but I mean, he's he's got a good heart. And he and the dog, the dog weighs half of what he weighs, and they play together 
all the time. And by play together, I mostly mean she's just constantly picking at him, trying to bite different parts of his body, and he just lays on his back, swatting her away, and they love it. They do it for hours a day. Uh, so Peeps is the, the, the old lady cat. What's the teenage cat? That would be Nate. And what's the, the bundle of energy greyhound? Hannah. Hannah. Uh, and what's, are you guys full up for animals? You got room for one more? Just get one more kitten, Scott. Just a kitten. <laughs> you sound like my wife. <laughs> Just one more. Just one more. We almost have a full home. Just one more. Uh, so, Megan's a vet. You, your job is, uh, well, explain this to us. You went from uh, uh, Land of, when you were doing Land of Legends, was that like as a full-time job or was that a project you were doing on the side? It was a full-time job and that was okay. probably one of my mistakes with it is I, I probably should have kept it as a side project. So, you went from that to where you are now. Explain to us how you got into your job now and what it is. Well, I, you know, I knew a lot of the people over at PopCap socially, and, and I mean, even even year, five years ago, it was just a very attractive place to want to be, and, and I very much wanted to work there. And, and at the time, I'd been I'd worked at Microsoft, a lot of software companies, but not, not in games. And so part of the reason I had done my own project was to sort of, uh, as much as possible, prove my chops and see if I could sidestep opening games and make a career of that. Uh, so I interviewed at PopCap, and I actually got turned down the the first time I interviewed there, which uh, I was kind of shocked by. And, you know, I kind of sat around in my pajamas eating ice cream for a week, <laughs> you know, like I was just broken up with. And then, all right, snap out of it. And went and got a job, contracted at uh, Real Networks for about nine months, and uh, then got a call, and they didn't want to interview me again. And they just, you know, were offering me the job after nine months after I interviewed. So it's not so much that you got turned down as just there was there was a long period where they had to consider it before they accepted you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they <laughs> just had to make sure I really was the best candidate. Uh, and what do you do there? Well, I started off for the first couple of years uh, working in the studio as an associate producer and uh, had the pleasure of working on a couple uh, sequels to pretty cool games. There was Peggle Knights uh, that I had the pleasure of working on and Zuma's Revenge. And that was a lot of fun. And then about, I guess it's a year and a half ago now, it, was, it would have been in the... Uh, end of 2008, wow, that, uh, you know, we decided that we were going to try this as a company. Uh, a few folks decided they were going to try a little experiment, uh, take our Bejeweled 2 game and try throwing it up on Facebook as an experiment, see what happens. And at the time, there was just, a, I mean, literally probably three people involved. I think there was the developer, uh, Jason Payne, and uh, he had actually been down in customer service, but he had, you know, had some computer programming experience, and, and we really wanted to be a, a game developer in the studio and just asked for a chance, asked if there's a little project that he could do. And so he whipped that game into shape and uh, made it presentable for Facebook. And, you know, I, I was sort of sitting around working on other things, and, and I had a little extra time and asked if I could could help out, and I said, sure, and I said, well, do you need a high score list for this game? And they said, sure, and so I, I developed that, even though I don't really consider myself much of a developer. And uh, it just worked out really well. You know, we, we threw the game up, and it, it grew organically. Uh, we, we've, we've never really uh, bought a whole lot of ads, I don't think, and uh, it's just people really responded to it. And this is, you know, the I think I've heard you talk with Andrew Mayer about social games, and uh, you know, I'm not sure how much you know about the whole thing, but back in the day, uh, it was a lot easier to sort of grow by word of mouth. Uh, these these posts we go to other people's streams all the time. I mean, these days, as of like a week ago now, if you don't play Farmville, you're not going to see Farmville posts anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the new world is is pretty hard to get around. But back in the day, you know, the, the people would play. They liked it. They post these messages. Other people would come in. I think the brand recognition helped a little bit. 
we were surprised how many people had never heard of Bejeweled before. So we were getting new customers, and uh, the group grew and grew and grew. And now, geez, I mean, I think there's like 30 or 40 people working on Bejeweled Blitz. Now, how, what, by what metric can you tell me how big Bejeweled Blitz is on Facebook? So the the most common metrics are, are daily unique users and uh, monthly unique users. Mm-hmm. I think daily we're these are approximate. I haven't, I haven't looked at where they're at right now, but I think we've got about four million a day, and every month I think we're around. Uh, I want to say like twelve, thirteen, maybe fourteen, somewhere. I mean, probably twelve or thirteen million a month. And the reason those those numbers aren't as different as you might think is just because there's so many of the same people coming back every day, right? Now that is that surprising to you guys? Like it, when you when you say that it started off with just three dudes working on this, uh, did they just did they not realize that this was going to be as big as it is? Oh, that was absolutely the case. I mean, nobody really knew what to expect out of Facebook games in general. I mean, Farmville didn't exist yet. Uh, ah. I mean, at the time, it was like Mob Wars, Mafia Wars, Zynga Poker, and and you know, Mafia Wars and Zynga Poker are still doing pretty well. But, yeah, I mean, we had no idea what to expect, and, and there was no monetization strategy in the beginning. I mean, we were just throwing it up there to see if people responded to it, and we figured, hey, if people play it, we'll figure out how to make money. Is there a monetization? Is it monetized somehow now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's the, the same as, you know, we were talking about League of Legends earlier, where you can sort of choose to put in money if you want, but you can also play for free and earn stuff in the game for free. We follow the same sort of model. The idea with uh, Bejewel Blitz is it's one minute. Uh, so it's it's a not a big time commitment. There's a high score list. We we really try to evoke that old arcade uh, mentality with the high score list. Mm-hmm. But your high score lists are only your friends. There's no global high score list. You're not trying to prove you're the best in the world because it doesn't really matter. The only thing that means anything is how uh, what you do compared to your friends. So um, yeah, and then we we added in uh, coming on a year ago. I think we added in this notion of, of coins and boosts. So now every game you play, you earn some coins. Uh, the better you do, you earn more coins. And then when you want, you can choose to buy some boosts, which you know give your game a little bit of an edge. You know, like five extra seconds on top of your minute, ah. maybe a free multiplier at the beginning, that sort of thing. So everybody has access to these sorts of things. It's just that if you want to use them more often, you got to feed your quarters into the machine, so to speak. And these feed into this does not put you on a separate high score list, I presume. If you and I are both playing and you're using these cool little boosts that give you an edge, if I want to try to be competitive with you, it, it encourages me to also get these boosts, right? Yeah, and, and to be clear, you do get them for free right. when playing. Right. Uh, you just don't get as many of them. Right. Yeah. No, fair enough. No, I completely understand how that would work. That makes perfect sense. Now, you mentioned the the global high score list is only friends. You're not. It's not a global high score list. You're only competing with your friends. Was that your idea? No, no. That was actually uh, John David, the guy who runs our group. Uh, he was pretty adamant about that, if I recall, in the early days. And and I think it turned out to be a really wise decision because you know we we do get a lot of. Uh, Emails from people requesting, or at least we did back in the day, encouraging or asking for a global high score list. And I think it's because they think they're the best in the world and they want to prove it. <laughs> and so what we find is, uh, one, th- they'll learn very quickly that they're not. And, and, <laughs> and that might actually encourage them to give up. Or if they feel like a king among their friends or ah. their friends, that might actually kind of persist the wanting to maintain their pride. Uh, and then there's the the idea of just being a web game. I mean, this is not like a fancy downloadable client, although we, we have a version of that too uh, for Bejewel Blitz. But it's if, most people play the free Flash web client. And if, if you know anything about like web technology and Flash, it's I mean you can't make it hack proof. And and a common pastime we've had a couple of uh, well now ex employees who have actually made uh, bots that play the game. 
and I, you know, just yesterday I found out one of my old roommates is, is doing some sort of slowdown hack. I, I don't even know. So the, the idea with if, if your scores are only shown to your friends and they're not global, you don't have to worry about seeing a bunch of hacked scores that you can't compete with, which are really just noise. Right. And instead, if somebody cheats, it's one of your friends, and it's just like they're cheating at the poker table. So it's like, come on, you're being an ass. Don't do that. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think that's such a huge deal. Like, I love high score lists, and I love what it does to the way I play a game, but I honestly could not care less about people at large, like random guys on the Internet. But when it's somebody on my Xbox friends list whose name I know, that is is significant. That means something to me. Uh, so I, I think that's huge. So could it be much uh, Geometry Wars? Oh boy, yeah. And that that little score up there in the corner of the screen taunting me every time I played. Yeah, I loved that. Uh, yeah, me too. That I mean, that right there. That's a that, that's a, a brilliant twist. And I, I think Geometry Wars might be like several games do it now. But I think Geometry Wars is the earliest instance I can remember of my friend closest to me who had done better than me essentially being situated behind me while I play poking me in the back. Uh, That's what it felt like. Uh, And it it was just a brilliant innovation. I I love what that did. Um, Yeah, they they always showed the next highest friend that you had yet to be in Geometry Wars 2 anyway. They kind of took the score thing to the extreme because there were like the six different modes and the main menu where you choose on these six modes were the six high score lists. They were like the selectable (laughs) widgets were the high score list. And it it always showed you centered it. Actually, I think it showed like two people below you and a bunch of people above you or something, you click on it, and it always shows the next person you have to beat in the corner. And it's just, man, it was, it was taunting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, so what, what do you do day-to-day now at PopCap? So uh, Bejeweled Bliss is on Facebook. It's obviously doing well. Uh, so you can go home, right? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> well, you know, these, these online games, right, they're, they're nonstop services. And, and that's something that we as a company, PopCap, are still trying to, Get used to, because, I mean, you look at what we've done historically, and, and we ship software that goes on your Xbox or your PC or whatever, and, you know, we try to make it good enough up front that we don't have to deal with patches. Most of our audience tends to be pretty casual, and they don't even understand patches. On the PC, there's not a great distribution method for patches. So we always try to make things right up front, and now suddenly we're responsible for running these massive server farms and mm. doing updates once or twice a week and, you know, iterating in the public space under the public eye and worrying about... You know, iterating uh, UI is something that we do a lot in our products internally, and, and I guess you know employees are used to seeing these builds constantly changing, but but not before the release. You know, and now we have to change this stuff and release, and that's that's a tough challenge. So you know the. I really, you know, I work with with the developers and artists, and and of course the the business and strategy folks above me, and we figure out what the the right approach is, and then it's just sort of a. Usually, usually multi-week stuff for the bigger features, um, development cycle, just getting those out. Tell me about what it's like physically at PopCap. Like, what, what's the building like where you work? What uh, describe for me PopCap? Well, it's this very unceremonious, drab, gray building. I think I think a lot of the the public imagines that we we work out of some carnival or something. I really don't <laughs> even know. But yeah, it's it's, a, it's the Alaska USA building. It's 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 branded for some bank that happens to live in the basement. And <laughs> is, it in, is it in Seattle? Where? where yeah, you? yeah, sorry. It's in the Belltown neighborhood of Seattle, okay. which is nice. The commute's pretty easy. You know, I guess straight shot via bus in there. And, um, you know, we the workspaces were kind of cubicle heavy where we're at, and it was only recently that the companies made a commitment to staying in our building for a few years. And so uh, floor by floor now, they're really trying to 
to remodel and say, look at us. You know, I, I think part of it's like a point of pride. They want to be able to show off to people who come into the office, hey, we look like a real game company now. And so there's this <laughs> big six-foot touchscreen bejeweled screen by the new front desk and and all the trappings. And meanwhile, I still work on the original floor where it's still cubicle land. But <laughs> the view's nice, so I'll take it. Now, uh, you've only, you're not from Seattle. You said you've been there, though, like, like 10 years. So for all intents and purposes, you're, you're kind of from there now, right? Yeah, especially, you know, when I moved here, it was like the, the gold rush. People just trying to get out here for the dot-coms and you know, right. software companies. And so there's a joke. If you've been here for five years, you're a native. Now, did, uh, did you meet Megan out there, or did Megan come with you from Indiana? No, I did. I met her out here, and she was working down in Tacoma, mm-hmm. uh, or going to school, actually, down in Tacoma. I was kind of getting a young one, which I'll take. <laughs> now, you uh, you moved from Indiana, and you said you went to school out there. Uh, here's the only, like, if I say, I'm going to try this, Scott, bear with me. If I say, how about those Hoosiers? Have I, have I done that correctly? Yeah. If, if I cared about basketball, I'd, I'd be giving you some sort of answer right now, but yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah. Okay, so that's that's the sum total of my knowledge about Indiana. But you went to school at a big basketball university, that's right? Well, they're all big basketball universities in, in Indiana. So, yeah, that's a pretty safe assumption. Now, you were not a basketball player. You uh, said you majored in journalism. It's true, yeah. And not only did you major in journalism, you were briefly a games journalist, Yes. Very, very briefly. I think uh, one article, if I had, to, if I had to guess. But it was a famous article. Well, not famous. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a. It's, it's an article that when you tell me this is what you wrote, I'm like, oh yeah, of course I'd want to read that. Explain to us what your most uh, notorious article is. Well, it was, um, so I, I had the pleasure, and I was actually working a, a day job, of contracting at Microsoft at the time, and I had to go out to my car, sit in my car in the parking lot, and call Ken. <laughs> From your car. <laughs> From my car. And and I, I did an interview for him about Freedom Force uh, back in the day. And this is, you know, he's he's quite the man now, uh, having shipped Bioshock and, you know, Game of the Year and all that. But uh, at the time, I was super excited about Freedom Force because there was the uh, superhero game curse, if you recall. Like, no right. superhero game had ever been even remotely successful. And here was, here was a team. They were not only doing that, but they were trying to do this. Uh, kind of real-time strategy or, you know, possible real-time strategy thing with, like, real physics and make your own superhero. You define your own powers. I was like, this is the absolute coolest thing I have ever heard of in my life. Yeah. Uh, now, did you tell him you were coming to him from your car? <laughs> <laughs> I might have left that part out. Uh, I just want to say one of my, I don't know how, it, it was an E3 I remember getting a demo for a game that was a sequel to System Shock. And I remember thinking, well, first of all, it's a little silly. I mean, System Shock's from a long time ago. I loved it, but who's going to want to play a sequel to that? And the guy showing it to me was showing me all these cool ideas that they had. And I always, in the back of my head, I I try to be skeptical. I was polite, and I listened, and he gave a great demo. And afterwards, I remember thinking, well, I I can imagine maybe half of that stuff will will actually work. Uh, We'll see how the game turns out. And, of course, System Shock 2 was great. But I got the demo from this this guy named Ken Levine I'd never heard of. But I just remember how articulate he was and thinking, well, you know, he's an articulate guy. He's a good, you know, he puts on a good show. I hope he can make a good game one day. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, my very early uh, Ken Levine experience. Um, so th- this this interview you did w- was was published. Is there somewhere we can read the Scott Lance interview with Ken Levine? No. 
Okay. <laughs> it was an obscure issue of uh, of International Design Magazine. It wasn't even a gaming magazine, and you know the whole thing ended up being pretty short. I was really just interviewing them for flavor and all that. But okay. I mean, that was still as as a fanboy and kind of a, you know a nerd at heart. That was pretty much the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. And nowadays to do that, I imagine you'd have to like go through his agent, and it'd be like a press junket thing, and you would have five minutes. And yeah, he's he's like super big shot nowadays. Oh yeah, I think that kid might be onto something. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, though, Scott, I still think like I, I read interviews with him and stuff, and I he's still so, like such a down to earth guy. I mean, you'd never know when you're talking to him that he's this huge, big shot game developer celebrity. Uh, he's good people, I think. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's talk a little bit. I I uh, when we first started uh, recording the podcast. Uh, there's a little song, a uh, Dandy Warhol song about heroin is so passe. I want to talk to you now about another addictive substance. You've actually volunteered to talk about it. Um, and that's civilization. Being a strategy game dork, just like me, uh, you obviously are a huge civilization fan. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the latest Civ. But before we do, do you have any, like, stories to share or do you need to like stand up and say my name is Scott Lance and I'm addicted to civilization how far back and how dire is your uh, addiction or interaction with the civilization series you know I probably don't have as much cred as most I, I have played all the Civ games including mm-hmm. Civ Rev mm-hmm. um, and, and I like them all quite a bit but you know I, I definitely you know I haven't read a lot of your posts your reviews I mean I know that you've played these things I mean, probably 20 times more than I have, and, and maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, I, I've never been able to get past, uh, what is it, maybe like Prince, or, or what's the level above Prince? King? King, I think. Yeah, yeah King, King would always chew me alive. I, mm-hmm. I think I got up to Prince. Civ Rev was the only one that I, I spent enough time with to, to sort of puncture the, the deeper difficulty levels, and, and that's just the place you don't want to be in that game, so I left pretty quickly. <laughs> But you you do go so you have a long history with them. Uh, are are they the sort of things that you just sort of tinker with and drop? Do you find that they they get in the way of you playing other strategy games? Do you play them when they first come out and then forget them? Like what? How do you approach a Civ game? Oh, they're yeah they're, they're a standby. I mean, I, I do a pretty big uh, dense burst up front, and then it's one of those games where. I have a little stack by my PC where I keep probably four or five disc-based games that you know I can sort of whip out at any moment and be happy. And mm-hmm. and I think for the last ten years there's always been a Civ, you know, the latest Civ game on that stack. Mm-hmm. And you know it's it's just finally that they're in digital distribution. I don't have that disc anymore. So, <laughs> so Civ Five comes out. It's been out uh, maybe a week now. Uh, describe for me. What it's like coming into Civ Five before we get into like any later reactions? Like, what are your first few games like? What is it like approaching this new uh, iteration in the series? All right. Well, I got to go on a slight tangent because the okay. first approach is pretty gnarly. I, I was I was about to go to quarter three and type up one of those. This is why PC is dead to me, right? <laughs> Did you have technical issues? Oh, uh, and you know I'm not the only one. I, I don't know if anybody that didn't have technical issues trying to get this thing running. Well, actually, because I, 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 uh, I struggled with it a little bit on a laptop that I, I think was a little bit below spec before moving over to a more powerful computer, and I've been pretty lucky as far as, like, stability or graphics issues. Is that the kind of problem you had at first? 
Yeah, you know, I was, I was just getting an unacceptably low frame rate, uh, you know, not being able to toggle the options in game, and in fact, having to relaunch the game and then sit through that. What is with that 10, 15 second intro before it actually lets you skip that opening video? I know. Is it is it loading or something? What's going on? Yeah, what is with that? I have no idea. And actually, somebody at work pointed out that you can go hack some sort of config file and turn it off, so I'm mean, presumably it sidesteps it and doesn't make you sit another loading screen. I really don't know. Yeah. But, so, you know, I, 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 I was just getting low frame rate, graphical oddities, uh, just uh, texture corruption. I still get te- uh, texture corruption when I play from time to time where I have to shut the, uh, save my game, shut down the whole game, exit to Windows, mm-hmm. relaunch in order to fix it. I, mm-hmm. I just don't understand the problem. So what, did you have a hard time getting around this, or you just powered through it? Did you, did you uh, find yeah. a magic bullet? Yeah, you know, I, I, I tweaked my auto-exec bad, my config sys, and gave myself some extra... <laughs> Wow. And, yeah, I was set. It took about an hour and a half, and, I mean, I literally, it was amazing. And about a 30-minute span went from, you know, shrugging and and my wife having to listen to me rant about how I guess I'm going to have to ask Steam for a refund, I just don't know, (laughs) to, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Once once I finally got in, I was sold. I, I, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to hashing through some of this with you. But, I mean, I, at least at first uh, glance, I found the interface pretty clean. You know, I had to look around for things. But anytime you get a new interface, you gotta you gotta figure it out a little bit. Um, but I, it was so crisp and clean. It was it was a very pretty game. I really liked the simplicity. I love the one unit per cell thing. I just I'm, I'm not a big fan of mega stack games, and I, I know Civ never really approached that in the same way as say like Disciples or Might and Magic exactly. But mm-hmm. I, I just prefer the one unit per cell approach. And uh, yeah, so I, I've played a couple of games through now, and and. Uh, the the easier difficulty levels were were a little too easy, and I think that's a, a point that you've made pretty strongly. Where are are you now at the point where you're playing on prints or yeah you, yeah okay yeah. Well, let's let's take apart some individual aspects of it that I'm curious to sort of hear about what what does and doesn't work for you. Is there of the the changes? Is there a favorite change you could pick out? If you're asking me for one, I'd. And then part of why that's a tough question, too, Scott, is because the Civilization games have always been so good at, at threading all these systems together. And that's certainly the case with Civ V. I mean, so, so I know it can be hard to isolate one feature when they all tie together so well. Uh, but of the new stuff, is there anything that really stands out for you as your favorite new change? You, you yeah. mentioned the, the one unit per hex. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's, that's a real contender for me because it... It radically changes the gameplay. It's it's no longer about just getting this big stack. The computer doesn't get to cheat as badly. But then again, I, I think, as you've pointed out, that actually sort of exposes its biggest weakness, and, and now it's a whole different problem. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something, because that's, that's a complaint I've made, and I'm totally cool if other people don't share that, but is that something that's affected your enjoyment, is whether or not the AI can handle the new uh, tactical combat stuff? On the difficulty levels I've played, yes, but I I don't want to say it's killed the game for me yet because, you know, I'm, I'm just about to... I've played, I don't know, maybe 50 games in the prints, but, I mean, there's not really even enough interaction in those early turns to know. So hopefully I'll know soon if, if Prince or maybe even King holds up. But I will say, I mean, I even in Civ 3, I was getting chewed alive, I think, on Prince and King, and I think part of that's that I wasn't really playing the, the way the game wanted me to. And, and another thing I like about Civ 5 is it feels like... There's there's not just one strategy. I mean, I, I feel like the old Civ games eventually boil down to solve problems. Do this, you'll win. You don't do this, you'll probably have some trouble. Um, you know, like like heavy military games, rapid expansion. You can't really focus on few mega cities as 
competently in the old games, if I recall correctly. You're right, yeah. And I think this new one, uh, you can actually focus on those strategies, especially if you pick the right civs for them. I mean, India, I think, is one that, that's really good about um, having just a few small cities. Um, I would say, though, like, conversely, uh, I, I agree with you in the sense that it's, it's very different from the earlier civs where you had to basically boom out your population and grab a bunch of territory, and that was, that was crucial to pretty much any winning strategy once you're playing sort of competitively against the AI. What I feel that they've done here, and this kind of bothers me, is they have sort of forced you to not do that. Like, it's not that there are multiple strategies. It's now that you cannot play that way realistically with a big, uh, a bunch of cities. Uh, you're kind of forced to only play fewer cities. Now, within that smaller limit, there is some, you know, like the India strategy where you've basically got three cities. Uh, but the only difference to me is do you play with three cities or do you play with six cities, uh, which is their version for a, a, a sort of a bigger empire. Uh, I feel like they've kind of clamped down on some of the, the ways you could play in the previous games by forcing you to play with fewer cities. Um, but conversely, I do think that, that that's not necessarily a bad gameplay decision because it does feel much more manageable, doesn't it? Like, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily miss all of that, like managing all these different cities. I like just having a few pieces that I can tinker with and play with and, and jigger the way I want. And the cities seem to have a lot more personality. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, when you're running cities, if you're like me, you tend to build your city. You have your build order at any given point in time as to which unit gets the highest pro or which uh, building is the highest priority and then the next building and the next building. Because, you know, for me, I try to build up these economic engines in each city and then, mm -hmm. and then they, they kind of rip through the rest of their build order pretty quickly. And... I, if I'm not if I'm not solving a new problem every time, I don't really care to do it 20 times. You know, I, I that's one reason I, I think I played so much of Civ Rev is playing Civ to me. I, I like to micromanage that stuff because I don't really trust the computer's decisions. Mm -hmm. Even though obviously it, I didn't do so well at it, so I think it would have done a better job than me. But um, I, I I felt like I had to do everything. I felt like I had to manage all my workers. You know, and yeah. I had to lay that that road in every single cell on the whole map, right? <laughs> and it's just, it's not interesting to do that. It's not interesting to do the same build order in every city. And I like that they're letting you focus a little more on military tactics because that's what's sort of left over when you take out a lot of the, the micromanaging. And, and with fewer elements to micromanage, you get to focus more on that metagame. And I, you know, with Civ Rev, I'd rather play... I'd rather play a game in eight hours and be able to play three games in 24 hours rather than uh, playing one game of Civ 4 in 24 hours, which when you're micromanaging, that's what it takes. Right. Do, uh, do the, the pre does the presence of hexes make a difference to you? I like it. Um, they, you know, the, the flanking, I think, is a good addition. Um, I, I really like what they did with the, the expansion, you know, being sort of cell-by-cell cell now and these sort of organic shapes rather than the, just the radial um, ah, right, systematic right. expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pretty neat. Um, it does. Yeah, I think I heard some, one of the designers talk in one of those early gameplay videos, uh, developer videos or whatever they did, that it... Um, it, it, I don't know, it lets them render more realistic terrain because uh, everything kind of gets to be a little more circular, a little more natural. You know, the rivers look like they're just sort of taking a dynamic shape or a path to them, whereas, you know, instead of all these 90-degree angles everywhere. <laughs> it's like, so, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a little more immersive visually, I think, but I, I, I also like just the, the movement possibilities. And I like the way the organic city growth, and, and you can't really do that so well with a square grid, I don't think. Mm -hmm. You know what? I didn't even think of that, Scott. That's a very good point because I... 
I, I've, I've never been afraid of hexes, but I know some people are. Uh, so when they, they did hexes for this, I thought, okay, that's cool. But I'm not sure that I've really noticed a difference. I just kind of take it for granted. But you're so right about, about rivers. Uh, and instead of having those little step things to do a diagonal river, you can actually have a bona fide diagonal river. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite nice. Uh, let's talk a bit about the interface. You're happy with the interface, right? I am, and, and I got the impression that you weren't so much, and I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about that. Well, I, I think it's, it's not as focused, for instance. Um, here's an example. Uh, taking City management is a huge, huge part of civilization, and I understand that they want to simplify it. Uh, so if you uh, click on a city, you can then choose the building it's going to build, but it doesn't default to the the uh, queued interface. Like, it doesn't show you a list of cities that are going to get built unless you enable that. Uh, I'm sorry, of, of buildings that are going to get built unless you enable that. Uh, they even separate that from that screen, the purchasing uh, screen. Like, that's a whole separate screen. Yeah. Um, then if you want to look at where your workers are, like, if you want it shows that, but if you want to manage that, that's a whole other separate screen on the right. And down in there, where you manage specialists, or you can click, you know, focus on food, focus on hammers, you've got to hit little plus buttons to do a little drop-down list. Like, I I feel that they want to go for simplicity, but a guy like me who loves managing all those little things and who loves looking up details, all of that stuff gets sort of shoved away to, I think, avoid scaring people. Uh, and and I, I just wish that instead of doing that, they'd found some way to build in the information a little better. Here, for instance, is something that drives me batty, and I'm probably the only one who notices this. So I open up a city. I want to build something new there. So I'm looking at the list of, you know, where you pick a granary or a windmill or a barracks or whatever. I'm looking at that list, and while I'm looking at that list, I, I need to remind myself, okay, is this a hammer-heavy city? Is it mainly food? You know, what's going on? Uh, how much science is it making? What are the modifiers? So I want to look at the tooltip because they've done a great job of that. You hold the cursor over the hammers, and it breaks down exactly how many it's making and, and how and so forth. All of that is great. But the time when I really want to look at that is when I'm considering what building to build next. And the way it works now is once you've got that screen up where you're choosing what buildings to build, the tooltip goes away. You can't see it. Uh, and it's a minor thing, but I just feel like a crucial thing in the interface is to give me the information when I need it. And, and it randomly sometimes just doesn't let me check it um, when I'm deciding whether or not to annex a city. It's a huge decision, and I can't check things about the city or about my empire uh, when I'm trying to decide that. Um, there's also some repetitive stuff, like to look at the, there's an F1 city list, and you can hit that, and it calls it up in the center of the screen, and that's like Civ 4, um, but it's it's not quite comprehensive, and it, you can't look at that and then manage individual cities while you're holding that screen up. Like, I can't look at that and think, okay, this city has the most hammers, let me then instead, where this other city's making a wonder of the world, let me cancel it there and move it to this other city. You can do that from the list in Civ 4. You can't do that in Civ 5. Uh, and they also have the weird thing in the upper left, where you have a city list or an army list or a science display. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that there? And why is that not built? Because the, that information is crucial, and it used to be standalone screens that you could interact with. Why can I only pop one of those down 
when that information is duplicated elsewhere. I mean, it just feels a little weird to me. Um, so a lot, a lot of these, and I, I could drone on about this, but a lot of these are, are sort of nitpicky power user things, uh, and I just feel like they weren't really building the game for me. Uh, so some of those things bother me. It also it doesn't help, Scott, that I've been <laughs> part of my disillusion with Civilization Five has driven me back to Civilization Four. And in Civilization Four, there's a mod you can download called the uh, Bug. I think it's called Bug B U G, which stands for Beyond the Sword Unmodified GUI or something like that. But it's this super advanced, super finicky mod that shows you all of this like exhaustive information down to the decimal point for it, pretty much anything you want to know. Like when you tooltip over a city, it tells you how long it's going to take before it grows, exactly how much food it's going to produce. If you tooltip over a granary, it tells you exactly what stats will change in that city if you build this granary. I mean, it's just it's the sort of interface I love. Uh, and so I guess the, what it comes down to is that I'm a power user and I have very specific demands from an interface, and that's not who Civ Five was made for. So, but anyways, yeah. that, that's yeah. So that's me. So it's it's, it's working for you though. Uh, is there anything in the interface that you sort of feel uh, you would change? I I don't know that I would I would. Well, you know, okay, so one thing, I was pretty excited about the new Civipedia. I'm like, ah, oh, they got a search in here. Ah, oh, right. content, it's great. They even have these, like, uh, you know, the first time, couple, uh, first two, three games I played, where they, they pop up these um, tutorial dialogues. It's like, hey, I've noticed that you've got a worker. Do you want to know what to do with the worker? And here's sort of three little, links to three little help articles. I was like, this is great. And then I started <laughs> actually navigating around that interface, and I'm like, I can't actually find anything I want to know about in here. For example, you know, I think the first thing I wanted to look up is what the heck is a pact of secrecy? Oh, it's nowhere in there. Right. It is nowhere anywhere. And I, there's, I, I've seen actually different, I, I think even in quarter three itself, I've seen different people asserting that they know what it is. And I did finally find a string somewhere in the game that said, I think if you hover over the option to offer it to another sieve, it says something to the extent of will make this sieve like you more and another sieve like you the other the people you're conspiring against make you like you less or something and i've seen other reports on quarter three of people who, who actually say it behaves quite differently than that and i'm not sure who to believe or you know we don't for the diplomacy and i think this was one of your complaints we don't have a lot of view under the hood for diplomacy except for city states which i think they, they did really well and i like i like the simple mechanic mm-hmm. but uh yeah i, I I don't understand the repercussions of my actions through diplomacy. I don't. I, I just any time anybody asks me for a, a pact of cooperation and a pact of secrecy, I say sure. Because you know, <laughs> as far as I can tell, that probably means they're not going to attack me as soon. And other than that, I don't. They don't seem to have any repercussions or effects whatsoever. And they probably do, but they're just invisible and unintuitive and not explained. So I just, that, that just makes me seethe. I mean, when I'm asked to make a decision in a game. You need information. I mean, that's what gameplay is, is making decisions based on information that you have. And if you don't provide both sets of that, the information and the decision, you've, you've failed me as far as the game design goes. And, and to be fair, there's only a couple of things that are like that bad in Civ Five. But good Lord, it's just so aggravating to me that that stuff slipped through. 
so, so otherwise, like, are you okay with it? Because I think what they're trying to do with diplomacy is make it less of a min maxi numbersy kind of thing yeah. and more like this uncertainty of talking to a real person. Uh, does that sort of work for you? Like when you're playing, do you get this sense of personality with the other civs and uh, that, that, there's, that, it, that it's not just a numbers thing you can manage like the city-states, but this erratic, sometimes irrational, flawed being? Does that work for you? You know, it doesn't really. And I, and I think it's the whole um, – it, it's hard to tell, right? Because, I mean, I don't know how an, uh, another person would behave exactly, but – I just I just assume it's some simple algorithms back there driving, and that I you know making them invisible doesn't make them seem lifelike. And I, it sounds like I'm picking on Civ, and actually my my sort of plan, if anything, was to defend Civ Five against you, Tom. But uh, we're, we're talking right now about the few areas that I think I, I do agree are shortcomings. Well, let's get into then some of the things that you do love, uh, and I'll I'll throw you a couple of them, things that I love, and then you can agree with me how awesome they are, and then we'll be all happy about Civ Five. There you go. <laughs> what do you feel about uh, strategic resources being used up. You know, I had a hard time understanding at first. It's like, well, okay, so I've got two of these. Does that mean I'm allowed to have two units at a time? Does that mean I'm only allowed to produce two units ever? Does that mean I can only have two in production? You know, and I, what it was in Civ Four, if you had access to sort of one charge of a resource, that was it was enough for anything you needed, right? right. You're just unlocking everything if you just get yeah. one node. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I, I do think that's pretty interesting. Now, I uh, on the earlier difficulty levels that I've played, I, I ended up with more than I needed of everything, and so I haven't felt constrained by them yet. But I think the problem is I was just playing on too easy of a difficulty level. So, so one, one thing there, Scott, next time you're in that situation, sell some of that stuff to the other civs. They'll buy oh. them. I think it's usually in chunks of five. You know, offer those five horses. If you're not making a bunch of cavalry, you know, sell England five horses, and, and they'll give you good loot for that. Like, I, I think that's a part of their economic model, and it's one of the things I love. If you're not going to use those resources to field an army or later on to build power plants or whatnot, sell that stuff. Uh, you know, use it for the, the economic aspect. I love that they've done that. Uh, yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. So uh, one, one other thing i got to say I love is I love how some of my favorite decisions about Civ Four and Civ Five are how much gameplay and personality they put in the map. And that's another thing that I think the, this strategic resource model does is if you've got a node over here where there's only two iron and it's early on and you're trying to get a bunch of catapults out or long swordsmen or whatever, then, yeah, that's helpful. But what's really cool is this node over here that has six iron that's just one city beyond your borders. And if you capture that one city, that six iron will be yours. Uh, and especially like later in the game when you need things like oil and uranium. Uh, I, I just love the new system that, that they've got going there. Um, all right, so that's something that I love. Now you tell me something that you love. So and I, I know you weren't the biggest fan of this, but mm -hmm. I, I like the new civic system quite a bit. Okay, now it's not called the Civic System, and guys like me will bristle because they had Civics in Civ 4, and now they don't in Civ 5. Right, so. social policy system. <laughs> All right, tell me what you like about it. Why does that work for you? Well, I think your complaint, if I recall, was that it's sort of a second tech tree, and you like that they're doing something different, but why are they doing the same thing? And mm -hmm. I have to say, it feels more to me like um, actually an interesting hybrid of kind of a collectible card system and a talent tree system, which to me is different from a tech tree system. Ah, good, good. So, uh, you know, the Civ Five tech tree 
really, it's not like you're choosing a path or a node of specialization and ignoring the rest. It's really, well, I know I'm going to get this entire tier of technologies in the next, you know, 50 turns, but which one of these do I want first? And, and then to fill in the gaps. There's no, you know, by the time, you know, uh, Nation A and Nation B finish their tech trees, they're identical. They're, there's no distinction. And I think that's what the, the social policy system brings is, you know, the, the combinatorics can actually complement. There's that word again. <laughs> and you yeah. did it, too, without, like, you didn't even, you weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to make a joke because Tom got confused by the word earlier. That's in your brain makeup is rolling out the word combinatorics. Scott. It is. And, and um, you know, I, to me, it's an important, like, design principle, and I guess I kind of look for it. But it's, uh, you know, just this idea that you've got so many combinations of things that are all viable and interesting and just exploring which combination not necessarily is the best because, you know, if it's balanced well, there isn't a clear best. It's more which best complements my situation, my strategy, my strengths as a player, my other resources. And ideally, you know, I think games are at their best when every gameplay instance has some, some dynamic stuff that's outside of your control. And Civ has plenty of that, right? I mean, it's what resources you have access to, um, you know, who's around you, are you getting along with your neighbors, these sorts of things. Um, do you have, do you, have you know, to, to just fate lead you in more of a production-oriented Civ or more of a food-oriented Civ because that, that, to a large degree, is dictated by the lay of the land as much mm-hmm. as, as what you choose to do with it. And so then, you know, you got to choose these... these um, social policies, I almost said civics, social policies <laughs> around that. And, uh, you know, the, the nice thing I like about talent trees, uh, what I call talent trees as opposed to tech trees, is that you're, you're really choosing an area of specialization to the exclusion of some others. And I, I really I really like that. And I, and I, I think it is different than the tech tree. To me, the, the tech tree is sort of old and played out and boring. And, I mean, I get why they didn't do anything with it. But, you know, I... I'm ready for them to move on with the tech tree, and I think in the so, uh, social policy system here, they really did. That's, that's a very fair point, and I'm actually glad you did roll out combinatorics because it, it does get to, I think, the essence of, of, of why a lot of folks like that, that social policy tree, or I'm even calling it a tree. Well, talent tree, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ten different little mini trees. Right. Um, and that's sort of where I get to the CCG part of it is, you know, to me, uh, collectible card games, uh, one of their biggest strengths is, again, with these combinatorics. You've got, yeah, you've got these 60 elements, but it's about the, you know, five you draw into your hand and how you're going to use them and how they interact with each other. Right. And right. once you have all these different things with different abilities that start, I mean, you really start to get some emergent gameplay. And, and you know, if I give you, you know, again, with like a, a deck of cards and each one, has its own sort of strong personality, and I give you ten of them this time and ten of them next time. You know, there may be a little bit of overlap. I mean, I, th- I think that's what makes the board game Dominion so great. Is is you know the same mm-hmm. combinatorics. I mean, it, really, it's it's great for them because they're really not shipping you much content. They're shipping you practically <laughs> like a couple decks of cards, and and you know people are willing to pay a ton of money for it because there's so much replay value in it, and it's so interesting. And no game is the same as any other, right? Now that that is a very fair point. Uh, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, but my other complaint about the social policy. Uh, and this is one of those, well, they did it better in Civ 4, kind of like whinging things, which I freely grant I'm doing. But I miss the civic system, and I miss the way that you could change, that it was building blocks that you could change as you played the game to respond to different situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my other uh, complaint about social policy is, you know, you pick something and that's all you're getting for the rest of the game. And while in a way that's a strength, because it's like you talk about, you know, you know, 
part of what, what makes this an interesting choice is the things you're excluding. You know, you're, you're not just picking something. There are other things that you're not getting. Uh, and that's not really a part of the social policy where you start unlocking all these little nodes and you fit. I'm sorry, I just called civics social policy. With civics, you fit together all these little nodes, but you've got the same collection of them each time you play. Whereas with the social policy, like you say, you're only going to get a few of them in this gameplay session. Um, but does that bother you about social policy, though, that you can't change it or tweak it as your civilization develops? You know, I, maybe with any luck in one of the expansions, we'll get a sort of a revolution system that lets you, I don't know, get two-thirds or half your points back from any of the trees you've already invested in. <laughs> Respects. Respects. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> to immediately throw in one of the other trees. And that's kind of sort of gives you what you want, right? The ability to change directions, but it's got to be at some sort of substantial cost. And right. I don't know what that cost would be. Maybe some money, maybe maybe some of the civic points, like you wouldn't be able, or social policy points, you wouldn't be able to spend all of them. <laughs> Uh, listen to us. We can't even get the name of it straight, though. Uh, do you miss religion? No. I, I mean, I, I like it in Civ Four, but I mean, it's one of those systems where it. I I don't, and it's probably you know shine some light on why I never succeeded so well in the game is for all my micromanaging of workers and city production, I never really made the best use of it, and I'm not too sad to see it go. I mean, I, I loved what they did with culture in Civ IV. Um, and, and, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of sidestepping the religion issue, and, and I'm glad that they brought this, this idea of culture in a new way to Civ V. But I'm all right with religion going away. And, you know, didn't they do, uh, it was in that last expansion, I think, that they turned the notion of religion, they did sort of a second tier of that into corporations, and I think that proved to be pretty unsuccessful yeah, I, I, some people didn't like it. I mean, corporations were one of the problems with the Beyond the Sword expansion was there were a couple of sort of modules of gameplay that they stuck in there that were real finicky and were real power user kind of things. Uh, the espionage was one of them, and I didn't care for that at all. The corporations was another, and I really liked that a lot because religions tended to run amok in the early game, and they would kind of stabilize in the end game. Uh, and, and almost kind of go away. I mean, they would become codified. Uh, so these civs were this religion and that. So, so the corporations kind of stepped in to fill in the, the role of religion. Uh, but they didn't work the same way. Uh, they could be hard to manage. But I really liked corporations, though. I, I kind of miss those. Um, but, but, yeah, they, so they got rid of religions and, and corporations, and they just put it in their social policy stuff. Uh, so, all right, Tom, I, I got to take a step back here. Sure. You know, a C for Civ Five, really. Now, do you do you really so, so do you want to have the, the argument about grading systems? Because we can do that. Uh, I'm happy to always talk about what I've written in a review or, or specific yeah. things I've said. But do you want to have the uh, the the grading discussion? Because we can. No. Okay. Well, so, yeah, what, what would this be in the seven and nine scale? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's just like I. But it's just so discouraging, and, and it's okay for you to bring it up because we've sat here and we've talked about the game. That's fine. What's discouraging to me is people who lead off with, with that in the discussion. Like, I can't believe you gave it a C. This, there's no way this game isn't a B-. minus. Uh, <laughs> I also gave uh, a C to, to Halo Reach. What do you think of that? Uh, they had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let me throw something else at you that I really like about Civ V, and you mentioned this before. Isn't it really cool having these mini NPCs in the form of city-states? 
Like, isn't it, and, and again, it gives the map personality. Like, oh, this little corner over here is Genoa, and, and down over here, Rio de Janeiro has this little peninsula. Like, I love the fact that it's populated with these mini players. Uh, you obviously are a fan of those, right? Oh, yeah, and I, I think it actually helps the diplomacy game. Uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, the old civs, they were a little wishy-washy. I, what, what was the exact uh, voting behavior of civs? You know, like other players. Once you got the uh, the United Nations, did they? Did everybody always vote for themselves? They didn't, did they? No, you could have. Well, I think you could vassalize people, and then they would always vote for you. I think if they liked you enough, they would vote for you. Votes were partly based on population. Um, yeah. But but now every civ only gets one vote. So to win that diplomatic victory, you've got to buddy up with the city states because uh, exactly. each of them gets the same amount of votes as you know whoever's in first place. Uh, yeah. And that's what I like. I like the idea that, I mean, of course civs are going to vote for themselves. Why wouldn't they? Right. And, and I did kind of like the um, population waiting before, but the, that, that made diplomacy value, I mean, military kind of a little more than it should, is, is one real good way to get the population advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like in the new game that, 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 you know, you can actually, if you want another vote, for example, you can liberate somebody's capital that's, that another player took over via military. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to get a vote for yourself. And, the, and these city-states going after those, I, I just found that real elegant. I love that dynamic of over here is, you know, France has been parked on Stockholm forever. Uh, it's been one of their cities. But if I liberate, if I capture that city, I can liberate it and, and, uh, and turn it into, you know, its own entity again. Uh, I, I love how that's preserved. Um, but But, again, that kind of... So this is another nitpicky thing, Scott, but if you want to win a diplomatic victory, if you've got somebody in your game who tends to conquer city-states, and it seems to me there are a few civilizations that are really emphatic about this, like France and Rome, you know, they just swallow up territory. So if you want to win a diplomatic victory in those games, you basically have to go to war with the empires that have swallowed up the city-states. Like, it seems... It just seems like a, a, a sort of a broken dynamic to me uh, that it requires going to war to liberate occupied city-states to win a diplomatic victory. Because there's no way once some of them get swallowed up that you're going to have enough, that you're going to be able to get enough votes to actually make the UN worthwhile. Uh, yeah, that's fair. So, all right, what's one more thing that you like uh, about Civ Five? One more thing I like about Civ Five. Um, I, I do love the the way the city growth is, is pretty oh, interesting, yes. and and you know the the radial stuff was interesting. You know it it seemed like a good enough analog of, of real life, but now that we've seen it can take any shape they want, and they sort of grow in the direction of resources naturally, and and for that matter artificially, because when you're buying cells with gold, you're doing the same thing. That's uh, I, I really love the feel of that, and that. You know, there's that little mini map down in the corner, which I mean, it's just it's not much, and I don't think of it's all flat colors, and I yet I don't think I've seen a more attractive mini map. It just it always looks cool looking down at that thing. Yeah, yeah, and and it's uh, partially because the the nations aren't just these little concentric circles that happen to butt up into each other, <laughs> but it's this, it really is this sort of beast growing in weird ways. I really, really wish we had that map at the end of a game that shows each Civ's territory, like, growing. Like, it almost looks like a little uh, Petri dish with a virus. Yeah. I miss that, especially with the new amorphic uh, shape of, of civilizations here. I couldn't believe they took that out the whole first game. I, I can't even tell you, like, probably probably 10 or 15 times. It consciously occurred to me during the game, oh, man, it's going to be so cool watching that time lapse. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nope, not <laughs> for you. So, Rob, <laughs> do you have a favorite civilization? Um, you know, I tend to go with the more economic style civs. Um, I, I, I liked Egypt because they pretty darn good. They the, that with the burial chamber, I think it was, where you get the happiness and the culture out of it, if I'm not mistaken. What does it replace? And, do you know? Uh, see, that's a good question. I don't actually okay. remember off the top of my head. And uh, and then probably the temple. Uh, if I'm, if oh, I'm that makes guess. sense. Right, right, yeah. right. And then, um, of course, their their main ability is that they can build wonders. So my my capital ended up being kind of wonder central. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Are you okay? Because I've heard some people complain about the new wonders, and I. I don't necessarily understand that complaint. I guess I haven't min-maxed the wonders enough. Uh, but are, do you approve of the, the wonders? Like, are you happy with them? I've got no problems with them. I mean, yeah. part of it may be that I haven't played the game enough to know what I'm not supposed to like about them. Right. But um, they, they did seem a little a little underwhelming. I thought in Civ Four they were a little more boom-bastic. Uh, it just, you know, here I felt like actually, especially with Egypt, of course, that's their specialty. I was... I was ripping through them left and right, and I could definitely feel the aggregated effects of them. But it's like, you know, this one's this one's effect is plus eight culture. That's it, really, plus eight culture. Now, one thing, and this is this is always a system. This of the systems in Civilization, I understand the least, or can and at least equipped to take advantage of. It would have to be the great person's thing, like like managing specialists to get those great person points up. I've never been good at that. So a lot of times, some of these wonders, I, I think one of their advantages is in giving you more great person points. So I've looked at a few wonders and gone, what, really? That's all? That's what you get? And I think some of those wonders probably mainly help you for great person points. Uh, yeah, and a lot of them, I think, I think they all give you one ambient great person point per turn. Um, and then, of course, you know, you, you get a few of those, and I think there's some that offer more great person points right. and some that offer some, some modifiers. But you start piling those percentages on top of each other, and then you get some specialists in the city. And, I mean, the, the it's not We Love the King Day, but the, the Golden Age uh, is a pretty strong pretty strong thing. And I, 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 in Civ 4, they were a little mysterious to me uh, when they started, and, and more importantly, how long they were going to last for. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like that it's a... Um, it's a more explained dynamic here. Like, I can actually make decisions about when I'm going to go after it, how long I'm going to have it for. Yep. Yep. And I mean, it's excess happiness, too, is, is kind of interesting. I like that they simplified that by, rather than it being another thing you have to manage per city, they took it out. It's, and, and the extra happiness actually does you some good now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also really like the new We Love the King system, where it's a simple matter. If you get this luxury good to this city, it grows faster for a while. Uh, I, I, they're little missions. Like you, yeah, you that's know? right. Yeah, yeah. So not only that, but the city states have their little missions yep. for for getting like them. And even if you hadn't been uh, working much with a city state before, you essentially do get a reward for filling, fulfilling that quest because they're going to like you. You're probably going to become at least friends, if not allies, and and you're going to get some sort of reward for X turns after that. Be it extra food, maybe a couple military units, uh, some culture, or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the idea of having these little quests in Civ. I think it's a good addition. You know, so I like, okay, you, you've brought me around. Like, I, I really can't wait for Civ 5 to get, to, like, I can't help but think, surely Firaxis has heard a bunch of us kvetching about things like the AI and opaque diplomacy. Surely they're going to do some kind of patchwork. I am really excited for how Civ is going to look in, I don't know, two, three, four months. Uh, yeah. So when, when we talk, you've you brought me around, Scott. I'm, I'm a Civ five fan so there or at least i will be in four months after it's been patched yeah. a little bit. <laughs> well i'll go a step further i mean you know we're 
we've been so spoiled for the last couple of years playing Civ Four with all the expansions in place. Yeah. And I mean, well, okay. So the one meaningful expansion. <laughs> I <should say. laughs> well, expansions and mods. I think if you look at things like Fall from Heaven, also. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is there uh, not the very beginnings of uh, Fall for Heaven for Civ Five starting to? Oh, has, has has Derek said something? Like, is no, there? I, I thought I saw this somewhere that he picked up the mod tools, but I could be mistaken. I know he's been talking a little bit about them in the thread. You know, I would be surprised, Scott, if he doesn't do something. I mean, I hate the fact that he had another standalone project going and that that fell through. But a possible silver lining, as much as that sucks for Derek, and I hate that he's dealing with that, a possible silver lining is he's now looking at mod tools, and surely it's got to be eating at that guy to make a, a fall from heaven for Civ Five now. Yeah. Uh, so, Okay, let me throw one last thing at you that I hate about Civ Five. It's my own weird little niggling complaint. I'm curious if you agree. Theaters in Civ Five make you happy. Opera houses, on the other hand, make you cultured. Opera makes me happy. I'm an opera fan. Why does Paraxis <laughs> hate opera, jerks? <laughs> that, does that bother you? Is that something that, that just makes you steam every time you play Civ Five? You know, I, I can sleep at night. I'm all right with it. Uh, before I ask you a random question, which uh, I'm going to hit you with in a minute, uh, you mentioned something earlier that I want to ask you about real quick. This is as far as we could possibly get from Civ Five. Uh, you said that you got some hands-on with Connect recently? I did, yeah. A buddy of mine, is uh, he, he works over Microsoft, and he's got one of the prototype devices and I mean, hell, I'm not under NDA, so I guess, <laughs> I guess I can talk about that. Well, what did you get to do? What did, what did you see, and, and how did you think it worked? Well, they had the uh, they had the pack-in game, which is that... Adventures. Adventures, yeah. And i I got to admit, I was pretty pleasantly surprised with that. Um, I got to see a little bit of Dance Central, which it's harmonic, so I don't think it's much of a surprise that they seem to be doing about as good a job with that as can be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was... I, I mean, the only thing that I think interests me less than Wii Sports now is Connect Sports. I, I just, <laughs> yeah, the idea of just, you know, moving my hand up and in virtual bowling, I just, I don't, I can't <laughs> do it. I can't. Uh, but, but yeah, I, the Adventures actually I thought was, was very witty. Um, I looked at how they did a lot of their UI and, you know, what are the games they're making with this? Because I, I think we all know it's an undiscovered territory and whether or not it's going to end up being a, worth a damn, you know, that territory is going to matter, be good, is uh, for grabs. But, uh, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised with a lot of what they were doing. Uh, my wife was there, and, and you know, she she started frothing at, the, at her mouth a few times uh, during the, the afternoon, and, you know, I, I think it's turned into a day one purchase for us. Oh, because she wants Connect, not because she was rapidly angry about something. No, 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 she <laughs> loved it. And, and, I mean, I think... I think she was pretty indifferent about the sports thing, too. But, uh, you know, the the Connect Adventures, I think everybody's seen, there's the whitewater rafting thing, which I, you got to do some jumping on that. That's a little impractical. I mean, God help you if you're in an apartment with people below you, for example. Um, and, and, you know, you can kind of sort of do bend at the knees and straighten up real fast to fake it out, but it, it doesn't necessarily work every time. And, um, you know, some of the UI stuff was a bit weird. You know, you feel like you're talking to the Enterprise Xbox Dashboard, Xbox, rewind, <laughs> Xbox, and I mean, as you know, I do my Captain Picard impersonation and all, and that's fun. But um, it's a little weird. I, I, I still, I think they're trying too hard to find alternatives to buttons for things. Right. And I think buttons are pretty damn effective at doing a lot. Because for me, if I'm gonna like, 
I mean, I'm spoiled, right? Because I've got the uh, the remote control, the media remote for the 360. So you know, when I watch Netflix on there, I mean, I can hit a pause button, and even even if I have to have the control, I can pick it up. But I guess it's kind of fine because if you know, if everybody's laying around and and you know, watching a movie and the phone rings, I guess it is easier to say like Xbox pause or something like that than having to find your remote or you know, uh, turn on your controller if if you're if you don't have that. But I, I just for the most part, I don't understand. He, you know, he's like navigating the the avatar marketplace with his hands. I'm like, what are you doing? You've been, you know, waving at these buttons for the last five minutes, and and it doesn't really stick right to them. And when I mean, your controller's right there, man. That, that's just what it, exactly. I mean, I, I watch people do that, and I I know that I would be tempted to just pick up my controller and, and page through the menus because I I'm used to that. Like that's yeah. how I'm wired to interact with these things, and. You know, they're solving a problem that's not there. I don't mind having to do that. If they want to build gameplay about jumping around and waving your hands, that's one thing. Yeah. But to uh, take away the controller when we're most accustomed to using it, I'm, I'm not sold on that bit. Well, and to be fair, I think you can use the controller for most of these things. And, okay. and frankly, I, I think I will. And the actual gameplay to me is, is the interesting part. And Connect Adventures and Dance Central are both pretty neat. And, you know, there's some also, I don't know if it's going to be in the final shipped product, but in the, the beta that I saw, there were all these, like, modes where you can actually kind of see different, um, for lack of a better word, like, maps or visions of, of what it's seeing, right? I mean, you can get the, the raw sort of photographic view, but then you can also do the, uh, the sort of skeletal view, the depth perception view, the, the, you know, all these things. You can sort of see the outlines of yourself where it, it takes this thing that it thinks is a person, colors them a different color, draws a skeleton on them, and, and just sort of playing with that is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels like something that they wouldn't ship with, but then again, I'm like, man, everybody would love to play with this as a toy, just to sort of watch this. You know, this is the Jetsons age, man. I mean, we got everything but the flying cars and the robots. <laughs> uh, so you actually played Dance Central. Played Dance Central. I, I did a little dance into some Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison. In front of other people, including the woman to whom you're married? Oh, she died, yeah. Was there any griefing there, or, or are you, Scott Lance, a good dancer? Uh, well, I'm not a good dancer, but let's just say I made a positive effect on the lady. She loves it when I bust a move. So. Very nice. And uh, will, will this be on YouTube? Is this something we can we can see somewhere? I sure hope not. Uh, okay, I am now, Scott, going to ask you a random question that has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about. It's kind of a boring one. I apologize. You ready for this? I am. Do you drink your tap water? I do. That's gross. Is that weird? Is it? Like you pour water into a cup out of the sink and then you drink it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on, on purpose? Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I think actually here in L.A. we're supposed to have good tap water, but I'm not sure I would know that. Uh, have you ever have you ever been a guy who like buys bottled water and drinks just that? Like back in Indiana, I guess I, I think of Indiana. That's probably got all kinds of natural. Don't, don't, is, is there like snow runoff or something? Like I think of that as having good water. Uh, no, actually the, the the water out there was pretty bad. I don't mind the water here in Seattle at all. It's uh, I don't know. I, I mean I, I've got of course all my friends who you know they must drink the bottled or filtered water and I respect that. And I'm a simple man. I'll, I'll I'll expose myself to the the elements of the earth, help myself up. <laughs> now can you taste the difference between the water that comes out of the sink and bottled water? Not anymore. It's it's more like when I you know if I move to a new town, oh the water here tastes funny because it doesn't taste like where you come from and. Uh, you know, I guess the filtered or the bottled water doesn't have a whole lot of taste, but man, I just I can't in clean conscience use all that plastic. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Now, when you're at work at PopCap, I would imagine surely they make available to you guys all kinds of bottled water. Do you avail yourself of it there, or even at work, you'll drink out of a faucet? Well, you know what they have there is they've, they've got those, like, filtered water cooler things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literal water. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is nice because you're not, you're not wasting all the, the the bottled water and all that. So I've got my little, my little water jug that I drink out of that I fill up and... So I guess uh, Peeps, uh, oh, rats, I forgot your other cat's name. Yeah. Peeps, Nate, and uh, Stan. No, what was the greyhound? Hannah. Hannah, I wasn't even close. Do they? So they drink tap water as well, right? Yeah, although, you know, it's funny because, like, uh, whenever we go camping and we get the, the jugs of, because you've got to take the water with you sometimes. You never know if they're going to have it at the campground. Right. And we come home, what we use the extra bottled water for is the wife gives it to the, the animals. <laughs> They get the good stuff. That's right. <laughs> Nothing uh, but the best. You go camping. Yeah, from time to time. Now, is it, do you go camping, or do you drive your car somewhere, set up a tent next to the car, sleep in it, and then get in the car and go home the next day? Yeah, I'll be honest. It, it's more that. But, I mean, it's kind of baby steps. I'm, I'm trying to get to more of the hiking type stuff. But um, it's, you know, i got to get the wife involved, and it's it's... Uh, you know, a journey, and we are on that journey. But, uh, you know, it, it's nice. We've been trying to get out and experience more locales and, and rough it a little more every time. But that's that is a long journey for us. We're still giving ourselves a lot of pampering. Here's the litmus test. Do you own your own tent? Oh, yeah. Oh, see? Okay, good. You're good. That's fine. Uh, yeah, actually, my wife went out. We, we, we went to the sporting goods store. We were looking for a tent, you know, and I'm thinking, ah, let's get a little... You know, maybe eight foot by six foot kind of thing, right? You mm-hmm. know, some of this. And I, she picked the biggest tent they had. I think it sleeps twelve. It's like a eleven foot by twelve foot or something like that. It's crazy. <laughs> you have to get the Olympic size two family lot just to put this thing up. Uh, did how was it figuring out how to build that thing? Yeah, I mean, they got to figure it out. It's pretty easy these days. I, I, as a matter of fact, Scott, I would think of you as being kind of like me, a guy who's not above reading manuals. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Uh, and did you have to read the manual to build the tent? I did, actually. Yeah. Well, for the, the rain flap especially, because that had some, some weird little things going on to keep it away from the tent. But it's neat. You know what they do now is they, they sew it into, it's just this one little, um, like, fabric thing that it's printed on. Kind of like a tag in a shirt, but just really, really big. And oh, the instructions, sew, you mean? Yeah, and they sew that into the lining of the tent bag, the, the bag nice. that the tent goes in, so you can never, ever lose it. You know what that's kind of like? That's kind of like a board game like they used to do, where you print the rules on the inside of the box. That's right. Yeah, good. All right, well, Scott, I, uh, I'm glad we got to talk Civ Five. You, you've brought me around to where I give it a B. How do you feel about that? That was my secret goal. <laughs> uh, thanks for talking Civ Five. Uh, I appreciated that. I, I'm, and I'm so glad to find out that you were hero antagonist. I, when you volunteered to, to talk Civ Five, the first thing I thought was, wait, doesn't that guy work at PopCap on Bejeweled? And he wants to talk about Civ Five, and it turned out to be you, hero antagonist. So, well, you know, hey, I, real quick to dispel a myth, I sure. will say there are an awful lot of people at PopCap that are pretty hardcore gamers. Uh, you know, a lot more so than you'd think. There's, it's no accident that, say, Plants vs Zombies came out of there, and we've had a few other projects that have been canceled that, that I mean, nerd types would have loved. L- let me ask you this: What is it that? that... So, so having you on to talk about you who works on uh, on Bejeweled Twist to talk about Civilization Five, that's a bit like having a guy who cooks crystal meth 
talking about uh, heroin, <laughs> you, you know, like, is there any point of commonality that makes Bejeweled and Civ two of the most addictive games ever made? Well, see, I would have said a square grid, but now that's shot. Aha! That's blown. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, diamonds. There you go. That's the common common element. <laughs> no, I'm actually kind of being serious. Like, do you do you think that there is any reason that those two games are as as completely as addictive as they are, or are they completely separate dynamics? That's a good question. I'm trying to think through it. You know, I, I think they rely on, on pretty different things and appeal to different audiences, but, I, I mean, I do know that we get a lot of inspiration, for lack of a better word, from from a lot of hardcore games, and I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, PVZ is pretty, pretty obvious, right? It's a um, right. tower defense game, and it kind of speaks for itself. Um, you know... I'm I'm just having a hard time drawing connections right now, but there's a very healthy internal discussion at PopCap about, you know, what what games we're playing, what we like about them, what works and doesn't work, and and that sort of context I think informs a lot of the design decisions that are made. I mean, I, I'm not a designer. I don't I don't make sort of gameplay design decisions uh, at all. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to get to participate in conversations with the other people there that do, but. Um, I, I definitely see these folks are playing games like Civ Five and mm-hmm. League of Legends and and you know all these other kind of big uh, AAA games and and they definitely do provide context for for what works and you know you look at things like RPG mechanics right back in the day and and now everything has levels and experience and they're ubiquitous but who would have thought that 10 15 years ago that that every game right. would would have levels and XP and you know I I've been thinking for a while that collectible card game mechanics are are a few different properties of them are making their way into games, and I mean, you know, PVZ is is a game where that that shines pretty clearly. Yep. Uh, it's not just a tower defense game, but you know, you're deck building every level in a yep. way. And, yeah, that's kind of a long way for you to shrug and say you don't really know. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Let me float something here. This is a real beret wearing kind of thing. Let me know if you think this is too much of a stretch. The the commonality between Bejeweled and Civilization is that the player's making relatively simple, discrete decisions that affect dramatically the shape of the map or the board. Uh, uh, do you think that works? I do. And actually, I, I'm going to toss another one in there, too. Okay. That, it, that it's a, um, a pretty fluid, linear series of decisions. Um, whereas, like in Civ, you know, it, it's, they sort of throw decision after decision in front of you. And, and you know, Bejeweled's got that sort of pattern recognition thing. But once you play the game enough, you, you can see a few different matches on the board. And, and you're sort of thinking about, well, which one do I want to make? You know, you know that the ones lower on the board are more likely to result in combos and, mm-hmm. and you know, this sort of business. When, when exactly am I going to use that detonate button that we've got? Mm-hmm. You know, those sorts of to blow up all the special gems, and I, I like these little strategic decisions, and it's sort of a nonstop assault of them. And um, you know, where Civ's got sort of the bite-sized elements are kind of like the turns of the individual decisions. Uh, you know, when Bejeweled Blitz specifically, we we found that originally it was going to be a five-minute game, and there's just sort of a sense of fatigue. <laughs> and you play one of those, and you're like, all right, I'm done. And you make it this bite-sized thing. Yeah, and and it's got that just one more thing that I think Civ's got, and I actually wonder if there's something about a a certain amount of time that somebody can spend on a task that they're willing to repeat. You know, we joke that that you know people it, it's 
they play the game, you know, for an hour, but it's just one minute at a time. And the reason they're willing to play that hour is because they're only willing to commit to a minute, but yet they'll let themselves play for an hour. Right, right. Whereas had we made it a five-minute game, you know, I, they might play one or two games and then feel satisfied and done and fatigued and, and take off. Uh, on Facebook, what is your high score in Bejeweled Blitz? Oh, jeez. You know, I, I want to say I've gotten up to like five or six hundred thousand, but man, I've seen I've seen legitimate scores up in like eight hundred thousand, and I, I have no doubt that somebody somewhere has gotten over a million. But that's that's pretty crazy. In one minute, like oh, yeah. it, 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 these are all a matter of somebody's done that in one minute. Absolutely. Well, you play. I mean, these people are playing a lot of games. I've got a friend, and uh, I went to college with. You know, and now we're on Facebook. It's one of those things where I haven't talked to this guy and and. 15 years, but yet he's on my Facebook friends list. And he has played more Bejeweled than anybody I know. And he started doing it as soon as he finished law school and got got a job at a law firm. He started playing the hell out of Bejeweled. <laughs> he's played thousands of games. And he's probably made more doing it than I will in the next 10 years put together. But. That's right. He's building those hours. Dang That's it. Right. That's right. <laughs> I can only assume. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott, I really appreciate talking to you today. It was cool to get to uh, finally meet you. Uh, yeah, it's been great, Tom. I really appreciate your time. So those of you listening, uh, there will be a random question, a thread in the Everything Else uh, forum uh, titled, uh, Do You Drink Your Tap Water? Post in that thread, and in your post, use the word clear. C-L-E-A-R. As long as that appears in your answer about whether or not you drink your tap water, you'll uh, go in uh, to a drawing for a free game, uh, and good luck. Uh, by the way, if you've been in one of these threads in the last, like, three weeks, I have not yet updated the – I haven't determined a winner. So there's somewhere out there, there's three of you who have a free game coming. I just have to do the bookkeeping. But I, I promise these games will go out. I, I am good for, for my word on those. So uh, post in – do you drink your tap water? Join us next week. We will have, uh, actually, I'm not going to tell you who we will have. It will be a surprise. Uh, or you can just go to the quarter to three uh, master uh, games podcast master list and see whose name is there. You can find it out. Uh, Scott, I appreciate hanging out, and I will be seeing you around on the forum. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. <laughs>